This morning, um, we're continuing our sermon series. I just wanted to tell you a not-so-funny story. Uh, on Sunday mornings, before I actually come to church, I go to the office right around 7.45, 8 o'clock, church office, just to pray and gather myself. And today, I gather my stuff, and I walked out. And then it dawned on me, I left my keys inside my office, and the door was locked. Sweet. That's not what I was thinking, Darius. But anyway, yes, the door was locked. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, what do I do? I've got like 15 minutes till I get to the church by 9.30 so I can pray with people, you know, and I, I, my car is in the parking lot. I got lunch afterwards. I'm like, what do I do? So what does your pastor do? I took a few steps back and went, Pah! Yeah, that's what I did. First thought that went to my mind, right? And it didn't open. So I was like, back up again. Yes, and then the Holy Ghost spoke. It's like, are you a thug? Like, what the heck are you doing? You know? It's like, what, what are you doing? And so I, I gathered myself. I'm like, what the heck am I doing? Why did I do that? So I started texting people. I'm like, Jillian, I'm stuck at the office. Michael, I'm stuck at the Anybody that I know had keys. I'm like, please come and help me out. And Michael eventually, you know, he was on his way. I intercepted him. He came, picked me up, and we went back and opened it, you know. And I was just telling him the story and coming back. I, I, and, I, and I thought about this. I thought about, I thought about this aspect in terms of what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about spiritual transformation. By the way, that story might have nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. Hopefully you'll make connection. Uh, we're talking about spiritual transformation, right, going deep. The great danger, here's why we're talking about, the great danger that arises when we don't experience authentic transformation is that you and I eventually settle for what I'll call pseudo-transformation. Okay? Now follow me here. There's that thing within us, deep within us, that says we have to be different from the world. We have to be different from the world around us. But the thing is, if we are not marked by greater and greater amount of true, genuine inner transformation of Christ-likeness and the fruit of the Spirit of low joy and peace, it is almost inevitable and natural tendency for us to look for substitute ways of distinguishing ourselves from other people who are not Christian. You following so far? All right? So if we are not, and this, this deep pattern, by the way, is almost just inescapable for religious people. Because if we're not becoming changed from the inside out, we'll be tempted to find external methods to sort of satisfy our need to, you know, I, I, I think I'm different from other people. So things like pastors don't kick the door of the church office. That's unholy. That's unspiritual. I mean, we laugh about it, but the reality is, and you guys heard me talk about this, every single one of us, there's this deep-needed propensity in us to compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Constantly. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Constantly comparing ourselves to other people for the purpose of making sure that because we are somehow better than them, I'm okay with myself. We do that all day, every day. All day, every day. As a part of our sin nature. And when that comparing ourselves to other people is mixed with faith, spirituality, it becomes toxic. Toxic and dangerous. Because what happens is that we become, we start practicing boundary marker spirituality or identity marker spirituality. Boundary markers, highly visible, superficial practices, which purpose, which purpose is to distinguish ourselves, the insiders from the outsiders. So it's about yeah, your vocabulary, how you talk, 
The insiders, well, Christians don't swear. If you swear, you're a bad Christian. You can't be. How you dress or style. Tattoos, piercings. Oh, no, that's pagan. That's what heathens. And a great deal of time and energy is spent on clarifying what the boundaries are. How many of you guys grew up in churches where the sermons essentially were, here are the boundaries, and if you're a good Christian, you don't do that. Anybody? Anybody? We, yeah, more hands should have gone up because this is us. Boundary marker spirituality. And so we, it continues to nurture our false sense of superiority, fed by the intent to exclude others. The problem is that Jesus comes along and says, I don't care about these boundary markers. I don't care about these identity markers that you're setting up. I care about what? I care about the center. I care about the heart. And Jesus is constantly going around saying, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to conform to some religious subculture, but be transformed into new creatures. And he had a simple view of whether you were being transformed or not. He said two questions. Are you growing in your love for God, and are you growing in your love for other people? That's it. Are you growing in your love for God, and are you growing in love for other people? Very simple. Paul, Apostle Paul, goes far as saying, if you don't do that, nothing else matters. And John goes far as saying, since God is love, if we don't love, then we don't know God. This is the reason why religious leaders of Jesus' day couldn't stand him. Because he wasn't just challenging the idea of the identity markers like circumcision and dietary laws and Sabbath. Jesus was essentially challenging him on the understanding of what it meant to be a person of faith. For them, person of faith, circumcision, dietary laws, pastors don't take it. And Jesus constantly said, it's about one thing. It's your heart. It's your heart. It's your heart. It's your heart moving towards greater love for God and for people. It's your heart moving towards greater or less love for God and away from people. Here's the ironic thing, right? The righteous in Jesus' day were more damaged by their righteousness than the sinners with their sins. Tragically, it's possible to think that you're growing more spiritual when, in fact, you're becoming more smug and self-righteous. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? How many of us have been damaged by this? A lot of us. A lot of us. Somebody said that the strongest argument for Christianity is Christians when they're drawing life from God and growing in love. But the strongest argument against Christianity is what? Christians. When we're smug, self-righteous, judgmental. This is the halfway point of our sermon series. So here's some questions for you and for me about whether we're truly being transformed or we're sort of fake pseudo being transformed. Question one, am I spiritually inauthentic? Am I spiritually inauthentic? Here's what Jesus said. Woe to you for you clean the outside of the cup of the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Inauthenticity involves a preoccupation with appearing to be spiritual, but not being truly transformed inside. Confession, that's me. Anybody else struggle with that? I say things sometimes that I think a spiritual support is, a person is supposed to say. Anybody? Uh-huh. Sometimes I find it even hard talking about God without trying to convince people that I'm spiritual. That's why I share so often my flaws with you guys. Because other 90% of the time, I listen to myself, I'm like, why the heck do you sound like you're really? I try to hide my sin. And here's the thing that kills me. I, I work harder at trying to convince people that I'm more loving than I actually am than actually loving people. 
Second question, am I becoming judgmental or exclusive or proud? Jesus said, they love to have the place of honor at the banquets and the best seats in the synagogues. Pride is a potential problem for anybody who's pursuing spiritual growth seriously. Why? Because as soon as you start to pursue virtue, you start wondering, why am everybody else as virtuous as I am? What's wrong with everybody? You heard me talk about this before. I said one episode from the, from the Simpsons where Ned Flanders, a good Christian guy, says, oh, we went to a Christian camp. We were learning to be more judgmental. Where is that Christian camp and why is it so well attended? If you find yourself starting the sentence with, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I don't want to sound proud, but you need to stop right there because you're going to sound arrogant. This is why God graciously sometimes hides our own spiritual growth from our eyes. And I forget who this author is, but he said this, while God is at work in us, many times his work is formed and grows and accomplished secretly in our souls without their knowledge. Third question, am I becoming more approachable or less? This is hard for me. Jesus said, they love to have people call them rabbi. He was talking about the religious leaders of the day. The people that were closest to God were the very people that the worst sinners stayed away from. We equate holiness with serious, proper, boring. Yeah, holy, boring, holy, boring, right? said this before. That's why church, church isn't supposed to be fun and joyful. Why? Because it's supposed to be boring. Do you want to go to heaven? No, not if it's not like church. The irony, of course, is that Jesus was God. Jesus was the most approachable person that ever walked on the face of the earth. The religious leaders had a differentness that repelled people away from them. But Jesus had a kind of differentness that drew people to him. He was approachable. True spirituality is that way. Fourth question. Am I growing wary of pursuing spiritual growth? Jesus said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of others. Listen, if you're tired of growing spiritually, a pursuit of spiritual growth, the chances are that it may be because you're seeking a distorted goal. The the hallmark of, of boundary spirituality, right? manages to be both intimidating and unchallenging at the same time. It's intimidating because you got 40 different rules of what to do and what not to do, but it's unchallenging because you could obey all the rules but never work at the core of your heart and never give yourself to love or joy. And it's never compelling. Can I just ask, how many of you guys walked away from the church because spirituality for you was both intimidating but also unchallenging at the same time. Anybody? Because it's all about rules, 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 rules. And you never grew in love for God and for people. And lastly, am I measuring my spiritual life in superficial ways? Am I measuring my life in superficial ways? Jesus, again, you blind guys, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Are you thinking that spiritual maturity and growth is just about a few special activities? Can I just tell you something? God isn't interested in your spiritual life. God is interested in your life, period. Carlton, are you hearing me, right? Feeling me? God isn't just interested in your spiritual life. See, we think spiritual life, it's like we compartmentalize spiritual life, financial life, relationship life, right? God goes, your spiritual life, it's your whole life. The entirety of it. That's what God is interested in. If you compartmentalize, go, how's my spiritual life going? Reading the Bible? Am I praying? Am I going to church? Da, da, da. And all of these other areas, God goes, I'm interested in all of that. 
That's what I'm interested in. Your music, your relationships, your dating life, your financial life, everything. Let me say it again. God isn't interested in your spiritual life. He's interested in your life. Period. The end goal of spiritual disciplines even, and I'll talk about that, is not so that we could prop ourselves and go, I'm so spiritual, mature, look at what I'm doing. But it's so that we can grow in deeper love for God and become more like him. All right, so how are you doing? How am I doing? Pseudo-transformation or genuine transformation? Where are you? Where am I? Good halfway mark, just to review. All right, so last week, a couple weeks ago, we began talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. Role of the Holy Spirit. Because the reality is, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit is the primary person that, 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 that is at work in your life to produce Christ-likeness in you. Here's what Paul says. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 19, the flesh, disease of the flesh, walking according to the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, result of walking according to the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Quick one-minute review. What we've been saying is that our two approaches to life, Christian or not, you can either walk according to the flesh, which results in a certain way of life. You can walk according to the spirit, which, which results in a certain way of life. Walking according to the flesh is not some deviant sexual thing at the, in, the, in a dark room that somebody does. But walking according to the flesh is something that you and I are tempted to do every day, all day. What is it? It is trusting in my strength and determination to bring about whatever changes I feel need to take place. It's retaining control over my life, giving primary consideration to my needs, my desires, my appetites, and my fears when making decisions. You can walk your life or live, according to, live your life according to that, and Paul says, here is the result of that. Or you can walk according to the Spirit. And what is it walking according to the Spirit? It is. Living my life sensitive to and dependent upon inner promptings and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in such a way that His leading and His influence dominate my life. It's all day, every day, being sensitive to this fact that the Holy Spirit is a divine personal resident that lives in my heart. The person of Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, lives inside my life. And every single day, his desire is to guide me into transformation, lead me into Christ-likeness. Every single day, he is about wanting to work in my heart in such a way that I would be conformed to his likeness. And the goal of the Christian life is not do, don't, rule. The goal of the Christian life is get ourselves to a place of saying, you're leading and your influence to dominate me. And last week we said, the key is what? One word. Surrender. This week and next week, and for a couple more weeks as we round out the sermon series, we're going to talk more specifically about our relationship to the Holy Spirit. This divine personal resident that lives inside of us. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It's a familiar passage to many of us. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to spend time in Ephesians 5 for two weeks and then Galatians chapter 5 for two weeks as we talk about spiritual transformation going deeper. As we relate our lives to the leading and the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. Ephesians 5, 15. Paul says, be very careful... Literally intensely aware, intensely aware. 
then how you live not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, literally redeeming the time because the days are evil. 17, therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not, verse 18, get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? And how does it result in transformation for us? Today I'm going to talk about what that means. And then next week I'm going to talk about the marks or the results of being filled. But today, let's do a little Bible study first. Be filled. Be filled. What does it mean? First, if you're taking notes, it's a command. Grammatically in Greek, it's in the imperative mood. Which means this. It's not an advice. It's not a suggestion. It's not, you know, if you really want to do it. It's a straightforward, non-negotiable command. We have no more freedom to ignore this command than to overlook all the other ethical commands that Paul lists in this passage. And secondly, be filled. We don't passively wait because being filled is the Holy Spirit somehow coming and filling an empty space. Be filled is a proactive, active thing that we do. Secondly, be filled is in the plural. It's for everyone. Can I say this? Some of us, some of us, be honest, this sermon series, we're like, not really feeling that, Peter. Why? The whole Holy Spirit, not really feeling that. Not really feeling that. I grew up in a church tradition where the word charismatic was like a profanity. The charismatic or Pentecostal. Holy Spirit, tradition, the way I brought up. uh -uh. The problem is this. Throughout the Bible, you can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. So Paul says it's for everyone. All of us. Charismatic non, Pentecostal non, traditional non, every single one of us, we are to be filled with the Spirit. We'll talk about what that means. Third, it's to be ongoing. The command is in the present tense. It's a continuous appropriation, not a once-in-a-lifetime moment where you experience the filling of the Spirit, and then it just basically carries you for the rest of your life. Paul says, every day, all day, moment by moment, be filled. Be filled. Okay, what does be filled mean? There are actually two keys, or one, two, two, two ways of understanding what it means to be filled. And the two things that we need to understand is there are two commands in verse 18. It's not just be filled, but the other command is do not get drunk on wine. Paul says do not get drunk on wine, command which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Two commands that helps us understand what it means to be filled. The word drunk, it literally means to be soaked, to be saturated with, and to be dominated by. Drunk, to be soaked, to be saturated with, to be dominated by. So in other words, what makes you drunk, not just in the spirit, but even as we think about alcohol, what makes you drunk is not how much alcohol you've had, but how much the alcohol has you. He's not talking about the amount, but he's talking about the influence of the alcohol on you. So when Paul says be filled, He's not talking about filling an empty space, but he's saying, hey, the matter is not whether do you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you do. He lives inside of you. You don't have to doubt that. But the question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? Is his influence alive and active in you? Is his influence alive and active in you? So how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? Paul gives a positive and a negative. Let's talk about the negative first. 
The word debauchery. He says, do not get drunk. It leads to debauchery. It literally means to waste, to squander, to deplete, and to be totally spent. One other time this word appears, Luke chapter 15, 13. Story of the prodigal son where it says, the son squandered his wealth in wild living. Think of that. He squandered his wealth in wild living. Debauchery, to be wasted, to deplete, to squander, to be hopelessly out of control, to be totally exhausted by using a lot of energy and getting nowhere. Okay, let's be really practical. Here's how you know if you're filled with the Spirit. Look at a person who's drunk. Look at a person who's drunk in his or her time and what they do with their time. A person who's drunk is completely unaware of where he needs to be, what he needs to do. He is squandering, literally, his time and inefficiency. I was talking to a guy last week. He came up to me. He said, I feel like God spoke to me today. I said, he did? What did he say? He goes, I watch too much TV and play too many video games. And he said, is that God? I said, that's absolutely God. <laughs> I'm trying to make this as simple and practical as possible because you guys, you know, for some of you, you're like, sure, let's be filled. You know why? Here's what he said. He's like, Pastor Peter, I've been really struggling with the fact that I waste a lot of time. Do you know that one of the results of being filled with the Spirit? Again, no, cares, but this is as practical as it gets. One of the results is self-control. A spirit-filled person is someone who is in absolute control of his or her time. Hello? I'm trying to make this as practical and real as possible. If you waste money, you can always make more money. If you waste time, you can't make more time. I hate Justin Timberlake. They go together, by the way. <laughs> Do you know he's making a movie? Oh, he made a movie. Have you seen this trailer, In Time? In Time? Do you know what the premise of the movie is? People live to be 25, and if you want to live longer, you either buy time, steal time, or murder for time. Now, I'll tell you why that will resonate with people who enjoy terrible acting. Isn't there something in you and something in me that feels like I just don't feel like there's enough time or I feel like I'm wasting a lot? It's this inherent human thing that says, oh, if I could just, oh, if I could just. Time. Here's another one. You ever see someone really drunk? I would characterize that as a lot of energy or a lot of activity without getting anywhere. Does that describe anyone? Okay, let's be, again, very specific. How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? You're focused. You have priorities in your life, and you follow them. Let's keep going. Look at a person who's drunk. I would say that's someone who doesn't realize his limitation. Out doing things that you're really not capable of doing. But when you're drunk, you don't know the difference. Somebody tell that girl she can't sing. Oh, she thinks she could sing. She can't sing. Please somebody tell her she can't sing. She doesn't know. Okay, how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? You absolutely know your limitations. See, be filled with the Spirit. You guys are going, what does that mean? I don't... Time, energy, judgment. 
You have clear judgment about what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. So your life, focus, priority, efficiency. Can I just ask, how many of you guys struggle with this? Being filled with the Spirit, not creating some super duper. I mean, we'll, we'll get to, you know, the spirit, spiritual gifts and all this stuff, but it's as practical in real life as this. Why be filled with the Spirit? Because one of the fruits of the Spirit, the sign that you are filled with the Spirit is self-control. A Spirit-filled life, listen to me, guys. A Spirit-filled life is one of tremendous self-control, balance, and refinement. Would you like to be more disciplined with your time? You need to be what? Filled with the Spirit. Would you like more self-control over your body and your mouth and your tongue? You need to be what? Filled with the Spirit. Would you like to be more productive and wise steward of your time, of your life, and of everything you have? You need to be what? Filled with the Spirit. It's as practical and as real as this. Do not get drunk on wine. Here's another one. Here's another one. Do not get drunk on wine for that dissipates you, burns you out, exhausts you. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Oh, this is hits, this just hits so close to home. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. The fullness of the Spirit doesn't exhaust you. What do I mean? Do you know that God will never give you, that will never ever give you more to do in a day or in a week or a month than you can do? Do you know that? Do you know that's the same Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He also goes on and says, pray this, give us our daily bread. Why is Jesus constantly saying today, just this day? Because he wants you and I to know the only way that this relationship with God works is by a second by second, moment by moment, daily dependence on him. So if this God does that, he will not give you more to do in a day or a week or a month than you can do. That means this. If you've got more to do in a day or a week or a month than you can do, God didn't give that to you. You gave yourself that to you. Or someone else gave that to you. God didn't give that to you. Can we just be honest? Isn't that driven by insecurity, desire for acceptance, affirmation? I feel like I'm not whole because I'm not producing. That, the Spirit of God, not a fool. The Spirit of God says, I will not give you more to do in a day or a week or a month. How many of you guys, your life is totally out of control. You're spread out all over the place. There's no deep relationships. You're doing all kinds of things, and yet you lack focus. How many? This is the reason why I'm preaching on it. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Are you hearing me? Okay, so let me share. Let me share how bad I am at this. You guys know I've been on sabbatical, right? I was on sabbatical for three months. I just got back. It was during sabbatical that I realized I'm suffering from what one author called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. A couple months before I left for sabbatical, I'm at home. I'm giving my kids a bath. And I found myself getting irritated. Because they were having fun. Having fun, like ah, splashing, ah, all this stuff. And I found myself getting here, and I'm like, why? And I was going, and I, I literally, I, I stopped myself, and I'm like, Peter, here's life. Here's joy. I'm getting emotional. Here's life. Here's joy. And yet, instead of being fully present at life and joy and everything that you have 
It's amazing. You're getting irritated because you want to just get the bath over with. Because I was so consumed, you know, with my agenda, the things that I needed to do and get through, that he was life. And I was just irritated. Because I live with the illusion that if I hurry, I'm going to have more time. You live with the illusion that hurrying will buy us more time. Isn't that true? That's why we'll buy anything that promises to help us hurry. The best-selling shampoo in America rose to the top because it combines shampoo and conditioner in one step, eliminating the, you know, really time-consuming need to rinse. (laughs) Can we talk about a little more Domino's pizza rose to the top because, you know, it's amazing pizza. No, because it promised to deliver in, say with me, 30 minutes or less. We worship at the foot of McDonald's. Why? Not because the food is good or even because it's cheap, but because it's what? Fast food. And oh, by the way, it wasn't fast enough that I parked the car, wait three minutes for my Big Mac, so they developed a drive-thru. On that one fast enough, so now we don't order by saying, I'll have the Big Mac and the Coke and the large fries. It's, I'll have number two and a number four. This is the world we live in. This is the world that we live in, you guys. And computers, are you kidding me? I'm hanging out in a coffee shop, and I'm plugging in this code at filter, and the sucker is not loading fast enough. You know what I mean, the page? Those of you that are 18 and younger, do you know that there was this thing called dial-up? <laughs> oh, my God. Really? Ask somebody who was like 30 and older, what the heck was dial-up? Let me tell you tell what dial-up was, okay? It made this sound, and then you waited like five minutes, and then the page would slowly load up. And we're like, this is the most amazing thing ever. I don't mean to be funny. I'm serious. Like, I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, why is this? I'm going. But here's the tragedy. All of our efforts to speed up things, does it give us actually more time? Has it given us a sense there there is enough time? No, as anything, we experience the opposite. Someone once said this. American society, the culture we live in is rich in goods but time poor. And many societies in two-thirds countries, by contrast, are poor in material possessions, but by our standards, they are rich in time. They're not driven or hurried. They live with the sense that there's adequate time to do what needs to be done each day. Can I make a confession? Do you know why I was drawn to hurry? Because it made me feel important. Because I'm conditioned to think that I matter because I'm producing, I'm doing something. And when I'm not producing and doing something, I feel like I'm wasting time, you know, like giving my kids a bath. Some of you, the time you spend with your spouse, the time you spend with your family and your loved ones, 
The hurry and busyness kept my adrenaline pumping. Do you know what else it did, though? By the way, is this resonating with anybody? Okay. So can I go a little bit more? Do you know why I was drawn to it? Do you know I was drawn to hurry? Because and, and, it kept my adrenaline pumping. But here, it did two things. Number one, it kept me from really, really doing soul check and going, Peter, how are you really doing? And you know what else it did? It's going to hit close to home for some of you. It kept me from feeling the pain of loneliness. It masked the sense of loneliness that I struggle with. And I just masked the pain. Because I'm going, 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 running, running, running. Busy, busy, busy. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a sign of a disordered heart. And even a deeper confession, and this is even more embarrassing for me to admit. The reason why I was so hurried is because I was running on grandiosity. I could fool myself and go, no, you're serving the Lord. No, it wasn't. You know, I went to all those speaking engagements and church planting. You know, I did that because if I stopped saying yes to them, the invitations would no longer come. And if the invitations would no longer come, well, I wouldn't be very important. Well, and if I wasn't very important, oh my gosh. What will I do with myself? So yes to everything. Yes, yes, yes. Not because I was serving the Lord. That's a lie, man. I'm just telling you the truth. But because I wanted to feel important, like my life mattered. Is anybody out there hearing me? Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. I'm going to tell you right now where you're at. You can't microwave spirituality. Depth always comes slowly. Can I get an amen? You can't grow. That's why some of you, the sermon is frustrated because you're going, give me the six steps so I can grow. It doesn't work like that. It comes slowly, painfully. Hurry is the enemy of spiritual life in our day. The great danger for you is not that you're going to renounce your faith. The great danger for you sitting here today is that you'll become so distracted, so rushed, and so preoccupied that you're ultimately going to settle for a mediocre version of it and never go deep with Jesus and with people. Jesus was often busy, but he never hurried. He had a lot to do but he never did it in a way that severed his life-giving relationship with his father or he was never in a hurry enough when somebody said, would you extend love to me that he wasn't able to give the love of the father to them? (sighs) Are you suffering from hurry sickness? Here's a check, ready? A couple minutes, maybe. Signs of hurry sickness. You're constantly speeding up daily activities. Because you're haunted by the fear that there's not enough hours in the day to do what needs to be done. So you read faster, you talk faster, and when you listen, you go. (laughs) You hate waiting. Anybody? You know what I do? This is so bad. When I'm driving, there's a red light, there's two lanes, and there's two cars in front of me. I'm sitting there going, which car is going to pull away faster? It's the Beamer. It's the Beamer. It's not the Oldsmobile. It's the Beamer. And I'm trying to look really inside the window. Is it an old person or is it a young person? I mean, 
I get mad when I'm in a grocery line, 15 items, and there's some person with like 20 items, anybody, 20 items, and I want to go, can't you read? <laughs> Second, hurry signs of hurry sickness, multiple tasking. Multiple tasking, which literally means doing or thinking more than one thing at a time, but it takes too long to say that, so you just go multitasking. <laughs> the car is a favorite place for this. You're driving, you're putting on makeup, you're drinking your coffee, you're texting, you're blow-drying your hair, whatever you're doing, <laughs> right? Doing all. Third, third, third sign, third sign, clutter. Lives of hurry, sick, lack simplicity. Anybody do this? You get more and more books and magazines, and then you feel guilty that you don't read them. Anybody do this? You buy time-saving gadgets, but you don't have the time nor the patience to read the instructions to figure out how to use them. <laughs> then there are also less forms of clutter. Life is cluttered when we're weighed down by the burden of all the things we fail to do and know to. So here's how you know if you struggle from hurry, sickness. You forget important dates, you miss appointments, and you don't follow through. Fourth, superficiality. Depth always comes slowly. You can't microwave spiritual maturity. We live in a culture that's traded wisdom for information and depth for breath. Can I just say something real practical? If you're one of those people that has 15, 20 really superficial relationships and you've been frustrated for a long time because you're like, I want three, four people I can go really, really deep with. You may need to make a critical and painful decision to be able to have a tough conversation with some people and saying, I want to go deep with you. But if you're not willing to commit to that, I can't continue to give myself this big to 15, 20 people. I want to go deep. And this one really, really kills me. Fifth, an inability to love. The most serious sign of hurry sickness is a diminished capacity to love. You know why? Because love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. One thing that hurry sick people do not have is time, and it takes time to love people. And lastly, sign of hurry sickness, sunset fatigue. And this was me. You come home at the end of the day's work, and those who need our love the most, those to whom we're most committed, getting, end up getting leftovers. Sunset fatigue is when we're just too tired, too drained, too preoccupied to love the people that we have made the most deepest commitments to. Sunset fatigue is when you find yourself hurrying when there's no reason to. Sunset fatigue is when there's an underlying tension between you and your spouse and you use sharp words or you argue about stupid things that you don't need to argue about because your time is just so important and you got these things you need to do. You set up mock races. Okay, kids, let's see who can take the bath the fastest. The fastest one gets a prize. That <laughs> yeah, was me. And it's not about them. It's just my need to get through the bath so I can, you know, get onto my rest of the day, which was, by the way, just vegging on the couch and watching ESPN. Sunset fatigue. How about this? There's a loss of <laughs> gratitude and wonder. When's the last time you just paused and you thought, Whew, 
I've got an amazing life. Yeah, there are parts of it that suck. But I've got an amazing life. You indulge in self-destructive escapes from fatigue, abusing alcohol, addiction to internet pornography, watching too much TV, and the list goes on, where it's just a form of, I'm just so stinking drained and tired, I just want to shut my mind off and escape. Following Jesus cannot be done at a sprint. By very definition, following someone entails that you let that person go ahead of you. You cannot follow Jesus if you're going, bye, I've got stuff to do. Following Jesus by very definition entails that we can't go faster than the one that's leading us. How are you doing? Anybody suffering from hurry sickness? Yeah. I'm going to talk more about this next week. I'm going to leave you hanging because you go, what do I do about it? <laughs> talk more about that next week because I need to finish today by talking about the other, which is being filled with the Spirit. What does it look like? What does it look like when you're filled with the Spirit? And you guys could already begin to make connections about what it's like to be filled with the Spirit and why they would deal with hurry sickness. By the way, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, it's amazing to me. Do you remember? Except it's the Holy Spirit for us, and there's courage and there's joy. And people say, what? Are y'all drunk? Do you know why? Because the only time they saw people that courageous and that joyful was when they were what? Drunk. They say even in our culture today. If you have a pep in your step, it said radiate joy. People say stuff like, what got into you? We live in a culture where people go, that kind of joy, that kind of courage? doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And Paul says, don't be drunk, but be filled. What is he saying? He's saying, get from the Spirit what other people go to the bottle to get. You've got problems, and you can't face them. They rob you of meaning in life. You try to overwhelm your problems. So what do you do? You drink to get your mind off of them. You get life and meaning back that way. You lack courage about something. What do you do? You drink. Why? The consequences of me doing that scares the heck out of me. So I'm going to drink so I can get courage back. Vulnerability. I like vulnerability, so what do I do? I don't want to think about the consequences, so I drink. But here's how alcohol gets you courage, vulnerability, and joy. It knocks out centers in your brain. It depresses centers in your brain. So how do you get courage, love, and joy? You basically live in denial. I'm not going to think about it. There are parts of truth that you can't stand and scare you. Truth about you. Truth about your fears. Truth about insecurity. Truth about what, what it is that's facing you. So what do you do? I can't deal with that, so I'm going to go get something or do something that's going to help me block out the parts of truth. Block out parts of reality so I don't have to deal with the truth and reality so I can just live my life. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You and I do that all day, every day. There are parts of truth that come speaking to us and we go, I'm not ready to deal with that. I don't want to look at that in the face. So what do I do? I'm going to go do something and there are lots of ways of getting drunk that's going to knock out my ability to see reality. What does Paul say? He says, if you do that, number one, you can't sustain it. How are you going to see drunk forever? And secondly, the crash that comes when reality hits you 
It's even more devastating than before you saw it. Paul says, instead of going to the bottle, go to the Holy Spirit. Because what did the Holy Spirit do? And guys, begin to think with me about what what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying, the Spirit of God gives you the same courage, same courage, same meaning in life, same vulnerability, not by diminishing your horizon or your field of vision, but by expanding it. The Spirit of God shows you more of reality. Paul says, I am praying for a higher level of functioning in your life so that you will see who God is and what God is doing in your life. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will glorify Glorify me. He will take what is of mine and he will show it to you. Jesus saying the Holy Spirit's job when he fills you is to take things that God has done in Christ and the things that God is doing in your life right now and communicate it to you in such a way that truth becomes so real to your mind and so powerful to your heart that it becomes a dominant, overwhelming force in your life. How strong would you be if that was the case? How strong would I be if the dominant, overwhelming influence in our lives was absolute clarity and truth of who God is and what he is doing? How would your life look different? It's like this. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, the prophet Elisha is in Dothan with his servant, and they're surrounded by the Assyrians, big, bad, powerful Assyrians. And Elisha's servant is scared and freaking out, and Elisha prays his prayer. He says, oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wouldn't that be awesome? Let me ask you a question. What problems are you facing? I mean, this is practical as really gets. What problems are you facing that's causing you to go, I don't want to look at the truth of that situation about me, about her, about my marriage. What problems are you facing? Your wife comes to you and says, after 20 years, we're done. And you're going, I can't handle that truth. Your children that you pour yourself into, that your children, who you want to be God-loving children, are rebelling and are doing self-destructive things. And you don't want to face the truth of that. So you go, I don't want to, I don't want to look at the truth of that. The, the company that you've worked for for 15 years says we're downsizing. I'm going to give you a pink slip. Extreme loneliness. God, am I ever going to date somebody? Am I ever going to find somebody? And the pain of loneliness is so strong. You go, I don't want to look at the truth of that. What problems are you facing today? Today. What problems are you facing today? What's scary? It's just, it's just, it's, it's just, imagine this scene. Imagine a scary monster that's descending upon your little house, a little you. What scary monsters are coming upon you and saying, that and the truth of that is way too daunting, way too scary, way too intimidating for me. How do you deal with it? Some people choose the route of drinking, but there are lots of ways to get drunk. Some choose the route of a fling. Others choose the route of meaningless sex. Some choose food. Other people choose drugs. And some of us choose a form of escape, escapism. And Paul says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. I want, you to feel, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? He says, I want you to come and be reminded of Psalm 121 where the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Anybody need that today? Where does my help come from? The maker of heaven and earth. The God who is in charge of all history. He will be my help. 
I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Am I going to continue the pursuit of self-destructive things that all it does is mask the pain and help me live in denial? Or am I going to pursue the route of seeing more of reality so that I see clearly who God is and what he is doing in the world and what he is doing in my life? Being filled with the Spirit gives you this heightened awareness, guys, intense understanding of the truth of who God is and truth of what God is doing in the world. And the result is you don't just see the Assyrians and the chariots, you see chariots of fire. And God says, I'm in control, child. So the things that used to inflate us superficially don't inflate us. And things that used to deflate us don't deflate us. Instead of just a little monster, the Spirit of God helps you see the monster itself as in the end a small thing because there's a sovereign Lord of history who rules and reigns with all authority. He who sits on the throne of heaven is in the end in charge of that monster. A sovereign, loving God is in control and he's got you in the palm of his hands and nothing can pluck you out from the palm of his hands. And a sovereign Lord who's in control of all history says, I am working for my glory and your good. Is that good news? How strong would we be if the reality of that and truth of that not just came intellectually but its sense and the awareness of that grew in our hearts and in our souls. And instead of just becoming a concept, it became a truth, living reality. How many of you are sick and tired of living in denial about truth of what's going on? Would like to see more of reality of who God is and what he's doing in your life? I do. I do. I do. Because when you begin to see who God is, when the Spirit fills you, gives a heightened awareness and see more of reality, you begin to say things like, what am I afraid of? The creator of the universe is in control of history. What am I so impatient about? The creator of the Lord who is in charge of the history is, is working for his good and working for his glory. And he is working in my life. What am I so impatient about? He's in charge. He is wise. He is loving. He knows exactly what he is doing. What am I so sad for? Because of rejection. I go hit the bottle because I'm rejected. Because it's devastating to me. But the spirit of God comes and gives you heightened awareness of his unconditional love for you. And you abide in that and you go, man, that really? Seriously? Just on a side note, my kids, apparently I say that a lot. Parker and Sophie recently started going, seriously? <laughs> seriously? Seriously? We're devastated by people's rejection. Why? Because we don't see, have a heightened awareness of the fact that the maker, the creator of the universe says, you have favor with me. I am yours and you are mine. Come on, church. What would happen to us if we really believe and have a heightened awareness of the fact that the creator of the universe, the one who did that, says to you and me, you are mine and I am yours. The favor of the creator is upon you. Oh, good Lord. Seriously? Good Lord. If you're filled with the Spirit, I have the favor of the king of the universe. And the things that used to engulf me don't engulf me anymore. Things that used to devastate me don't devastate anymore. Because I realize they're tiny things. They're transitory things. They're temporal things. And the thing that really matters, he's not going anywhere. Praise God. I want to end by showing you guys 
one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture. You can come on up. Psalm 4, 6, as many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You fill my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Do you know why this is so powerful for me? Everybody look up here. You need to see this. My son, Noah, was back there somewhere. One of the best things about having a little infant is that you hold him and you play what's called the face game. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The face game. You hold him and you lock eyes with them. And when they first lock eyes with you, they're kind of like the corner of their eye and they look at you and smile. And you look at them and you smile right back. You giggle, they giggle. And all of a sudden, boom! I know he's in the background. And he gets startled. And you can see these things happening in his brain. And the fear and the anxiety, and he begins to cry. What do you do? You lock eyes with him, and you what? You smile. And soon, the fear, the startle, what does he do? He locks eyes with you, and he goes, and he starts smiling and gurgling again. And then I read this. We are hardwired for this face interaction. Because to a child, it's more than a game. And when a child makes eye contact like this, when someone lets their child know through their own body that they're understood that what he is feeling, his brain and his nervous system make crucial connections inside his body. He is experiencing what scientists call neural integration. So that when his amygdala gets terrified, it gains rapid access to his nervous, to his his cerebral cortex, which can tell him to calm down, calm down. While it works on solving the problem. So scientists say by literally playing the face game, you are literally giving the child peace. Because when you smile and you go, it's okay. There's something in his body that says, things will be okay. Things will be okay. Children are hardwired innately to play the face game. And then God comes along in the Old Testament and he says to Moses, whenever you gather, I want you to bless the people by saying this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Lord, lift his countenance upon you and therefore give you peace. Church, I can't think of a better analogy and a metaphor of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and this image of our Heavenly Father holding you and holding me. And in our moments of terror and fear, when we're freaked out, when we're insecure, and we are tempted to go do that thing to her and him and to, to be in denial about our truth, that he has the audacity to say, look upon me. Look upon me. Let my face shine upon you. 
we're going to take communion. Communion in the simplest form is not just an intellectual exercise of what God has done in Christ, but it is tangible, visible way of tasting, of eating, of drinking. And literally what you're doing when you're taking communion church is to say, God, make this real to me. Make this tangible real to me. I want this to be more than just conceptual, intellectual knowledge. Make this real to me. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord Yes, make his face to shine upon you, to lift your countenance, that you may lay down in peace both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen.